Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at capitalallocators.com. Three years ago, we released a mini-series entitled Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier to explore the early landscape for ESG. In the ensuing years, a lot of investor attention has focused on sustainable investing, but differing objectives, measurements, and benchmarks has muddied the playing field. It's a subject I wrote about in a blog last year called What's in a Name? The Problem with ESG. So until those cloudy waters clear up, I thought about turning our attention to a nearly universal area of interest, how capital allocation can improve the climate. 
This four-part miniseries spans conversations with leading practitioners focusing on climate solutions. We'll hear from hedge fund and climate activist legend Tom Steyer, one of the most long-standing and largest family offices focused on impact investing, and two important strategies in the space, nuclear power and carbon credits. Taken together, we'll learn how some of the top investment minds are working actively to address our long-term climate needs. My guest on the fourth and final episode of Climate Solutions is Adam Rodman, the founder and chief investment officer of Segra Capital Management, the largest fund dedicated to investing in nuclear power across public and private markets. Adam founded Segra in 2013 to focus on a concentrated portfolio of contrarian, underfollowed investment ideas. In turn, this led to a dedicated focus on nuclear power. Both Tom Steyer and Bill Oram in the first two episodes of Climate Solutions discussed nuclear power as an essential, although very long-term component of addressing climate needs. Adam's insights provide an understanding of the thesis as well as nuances in capitalizing on it. Our conversation covers Adam's early career, path to Segra, and shift in focus to nuclear. We discuss the fundamental case and market inefficiencies in the industry, supply and demand, the nuclear fuel cycle, safety and waste, and risks to the thesis. Before we get going, are you ready to join the Capital Allocators team? Wait, what? You may be wondering, did I just say an opportunity to join the group of three that makes this all happen? Did I just say an opportunity to join us in striving to compound knowledge and relationships through our shared values of quality, entrepreneurial spirit, intellectual curiosity, respect, generosity, and fun? Yes, I did. And even better, we're looking for someone to fill out one of the most fun roles I can imagine, connecting with all of you. If you or someone you know would like to apply to join Capital Allocators in the newly formed role of Community Engagement Manager, have a look at the job description on our website at the job board or send us an email at team at capitalallocators.com to learn more. Thanks so much for thinking about joining our team to help continue to spread the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Rodman. Adam, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Let's get started with your path to how you go into investing and then find yourself specializing in nuclear. I, not unlike, I guess, a lot of college grads, didn't know exactly what they wanted to do other than maybe to be challenged and make what everybody thought was a lot of money. Went into investment banking out of college, really didn't know much about anything. I felt like it was a place where I could be challenged and in theory, make some money. I didn't last very long. Pretty early into that process, I started interviewing. I thought I might like something more market-oriented versus the advisory side of things. And I was really lucky to meet my first direct boss and group of mentors at Corriente Advisors, maybe six or eight months into my investment banking stint. At the time, Mark was very convicted. This was mid-2007 that we were going to have an epic housing collapse in the US. And I was at Bank of America. And the idea of the housing collapse scared me pretty much to the core, but I was very intrigued. I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know what a credit default swap was. I didn't know anything about monitoring the housing market. I didn't really know much about markets in general, but what he said sounded right. 
And it was enough to make me excited to move to Texas from New York and job with those guys. And so that was my first seat on the investment side. And Mark and all the guys at Corey had to really pride themselves on being contrarian thinkers. That's where it all got started. What about thinking as a contrarian appealed to you? I think I've been a natural contrarian my whole life. At least that's what my parents tell me. I was the kid where the teacher was telling us that this is the way to go. And I said, well, let's not make a right. Let's make a left. If this is the history of something, I said, well, it's not really the history of it. It's more like this. So I don't know. Maybe that was a know-it-all, but I certainly fancied myself with some of that question that I definitely liked being against the grain. I think there's a natural element to contrarians and something deep in the fibers. I think at least as long as I can remember. Not when it came to markets necessarily, but when it came to light, I was a contrarian. What was the research process like in going from not knowing what a credit default swap was to seeing the conviction with housing at the time? I give a lot of credit to the senior guys at, at Corriente when I joined. They were very much believers in baptism by fire. I actually ended up joining the firm as they were winding down some of their subprime trades, but was also very prescient and the team in predicting that credit bubble that had kind of started in the US would make its way to Europe and it would manifest itself in the financial system, honestly, in sovereign debt market. I think it might've been my second or third day at Corriente and Mark just told me to hack up the phone and buy $2 billion of notional Greek protection, which was somewhere around five or six basis points over Germany at the time. I had no idea what was going on. And he was always the angel on your shoulder, but he wanted you to dive in head first and figure it out later. So I've uh, got a lot of access to different um, cross-asset products, and there was a very collaborative work environment where everybody shared what they were working on to bring us all up to speed on fundamentals. There was usually a lead working on something, but it was a very deep, I use the word white paper approach for Segra's process. Here's a whiteboard. Here's what we think the general population knows about this investment or the sector. What do we think we know? And then how do we make sure that we know it the best? What was the path deciding to go off on your own? The way that Coriente was structured at that time was that Mark was a great analyst as well, but he was really the portfolio manager sitting at the top. And he had a bunch of lieutenants under him that were managing positions, executing, et cetera, but were feeding a lot of fundamental stuff up to Mark, who had a direction for what investments he liked and themes and whatnot. I liked bringing that fundamental research element, deep research element to a full portfolio in investing. And I wanted to marry that portfolio management that he exclusively held with what I thought would be a good research process or a little bit different research process. And that was the genesis of Segway, borrowing a lot, learning a lot, but doing it slightly. It's been 10 years and they fly by. The way that at least I remember it now is that Mark gave me the shot. So I took it. I'd done well for him and thought I could do it. And he said, if you think you can do it, go do it. And then he backed me, which was pretty cool. And a few older mentors that I had in the business were like, it's risky, but not everybody gets a shot, so take it. And petrified as I was, that's where I went. And what did you set out to do? I started with this idea, like the early hedge fund days. I probably romanticized them a little bit, but I thought the early hedge fund pioneers were just, am I allowed to swear on this? They were badasses. <laughs> Volatile, taking big swings, conviction, and... It felt to me, hedge fund industry truly was becoming too institutionalized, which works. Obviously, it's great for asset aggregation. So it's not to take anything away from the incredible businesses that they've built. But I think that's very different from the Tiger model of the 90s or even going back like Michael Steinhardt decades before that, where investors 
limited partners gave you the flexibility to take big concentrated swings when we were right and believe that there was probably research edge. I was hoping to get a group of LPs that would give me the same leash. We used to joke, me and the team, that if we were pitching an allocator and they had heard of any of our top 10 positions, long or short, that they could stop the meeting short because we weren't doing our job. It wasn't always the best open. Some people took it the wrong way, but we meant we were really, really trying to scrape global markets for things that we didn't think anybody else was hearing when there was a real value bend to the security in which we wanted to invest. How'd you get from that to this sole focus on nuclear power? We always ran concentrated. We tried to almost be like 10 to 12 longs that mattered and about the same number of shorts that mattered. And our nets really just came down to sizing. One of our long running ideas, probably from 2015 or 2016, was that energy markets broadly were misunderstood. And we did what we do, which is try and dismantle what consensus had. It's consensus idea that we're going to decarbonize, for instance. That felt very real to us even six years ago. When we kind of combed through it, we looked at battery markets, battery metals way back. And so we knew that market well. I had covered uranium in the fuel cycle before. My partner, Arthur, had been covered utilities at JP Morgan. And so we're piecing together this knowledge base and nuclear just stood out like a sore thumb in terms of how investors misunderstood affecting that market in general and how it worked, but also just kind of how critical it was to our energy infrastructure and certainly to our goals to decarbonize to the extent that the Paris Accord laid out. So we started really digging in. One of our bigger LPs at the time said, hey, love your general hedge fund, but you guys are sitting in Dallas and you're 30 years old. And I think you guys are at $35 million in AUM or something like that. It's a tough business. You're probably going to have families. I think what you're doing in nuclear is actually really different. How about I match my investment in the main fund? And you can do something. He's like, it can be long short. It can be energy. But he's like, just give me exposure to that and what your views are on the energy markets. And I think you'll have a lot of success. That limited partner was right because we ran the two strategies concurrently for a while and we were capped in our capacity for the nuclear-related fund. And we very quickly filled a very different marketing process than for our general fund. And I guess the rest is history. So let's dive into the case for nuclear. And I suppose there's two things to deconstruct. One is the fundamental case for nuclear energy and then the markets and extracting value from it. So why don't we start with that former? What's the fundamental thesis you put forth for why investing in nuclear? I think it's critical. It surprises most to hear that there is not one credible academic institution that sees us on a path to net zero without nuclear growth. It's just the one pillar or vertical of energy investing where nobody believes it. It's an absolute necessity if we have any reasonable shot. And you don't have to believe me because solid academic research has come around to believe me as well. We believed that nuclear had to grow. But what was interesting about the market and what was being priced in the market, and this was a time when we were planning to shut 30% of nuclear generation in the Western world. We just thought that actually wasn't possible. And so we almost had a melting ice cube thesis to nuclear. The world is extraordinarily bearish. It's politically easy to be negative nuclear power. We were almost peak renewable sentiment. You're at this part in the curve of where renewables are easy in grids, where everybody could talk about it and adopt it and it would be easy. But nuclear is that workhorse behind it and it wouldn't stop mostly actually at the supply side of nuclear investments, so like the fuel cycle, the commodity side of it. We said, well, if it's just not as bad as everybody thinks, 
how bad can it be in us when we still make money? Where does a deficit uranium market or enrichment markets, conversion, the different pieces of the fuel cycle, where are the different pinch points if we, it's just not as bad as everybody thinks? And the thesis that we ended up underwriting is that there's so much negative news priced in here. And we think that has driven such a impediment to the capital required, even just for a very, very conservative case for nuclear generation going forward, that we thought prices would get pinched. And that was mostly around the uranium price. It was like not 18 or $19 when we launched the fund. It's around $50 now. It's still not a balancing price in the market. We still think there's quite a bit to go. But that was it, which is the market thought it was really bad. We couldn't see 30% of Western generation being wiped off. The market was very skeptical of China's build plan, very skeptical of India's build plan and Russia, which were the sources of growth globally. And if we just got a few of the assumptions right, we would have a very, very different demand profile. And the capital cycle was too delayed. And that was the nuts and bolts. Where does nuclear power sit on the energy transition that everyone's talking about from fossil fuel generated power to something cleaner in the future? The answer to that is that it's a little bit of a gray area currently. But if you went back 12 months ago, it was definitely not considered in consensus circles to be anywhere near an energy transition or ESG or impact investment. Amazing what an energy crisis and deeper failures of renewables policy and expectations for battery technology, how quickly we can pivot back to things that work and that are clean. I think that 12 months ago, it was nowhere to be seen. Some of the benefits of nuclear for the energy transition or ESG, see it come to the fore. But like with the green taxonomy, even the Inflation Reduction Act and the level subsidy playing field that nuclear is now on with other clean generating sources, all of these are gigantic leaps in the right direction for it being probably more in the fair way of what the average investor thinks is an energy transition. And then the only other point to make is that lurking in the shadows, but very quickly coming into the light is advanced nuclear, which probably up until the last six or nine months really hasn't been on anybody's radar, but we think is extraordinarily interesting, which is that there are off-the-shelf technologies that have been running in national labs or test reactors for a long time that are better, smaller, more scalable, have ancillary applications other than electricity, and they're coming They're coming by the end of the decade, and we think that's fantastic and will help solidify the idea that nuclear could be a big help in the transition. So when you've done this deep dive research and mapped out the fuel cycle and where nuclear fits in, walk me through how each piece of that value chain works today and where the opportunities are. It starts with uranium mining. You take U-308 or yellow cake out of the ground, you convert it into UF-6 gas, you enrich it to the enrichment level required by your reactor, and then you fabricate into fuel rods, which go into your reactor core. And generally, that's your process. There are many miners, and we do a, a lot of mining investing. Conversion is actually a bottleneck in the market. Enrichment, those are the centrifuges. Sometimes they have a negative connotation. Enrichment has been dominated by two or three sources globally, one of which is Russia's state-owned company Rosatom. And the current tensions between Russia and Ukraine have created a real bifurcation in that market, which will have ripple effects for many, many, many years. They're close to 50% of the market, and over time, they'll be cut out of Western markets, in our opinion, which will create a very big deficit in that market. Well, let's walk through each one. So start with mining. It's not hard to draw corollaries to mining in gold or energy 
There's always ESG concerns. How do you think about where you want to play on the mining part of the value chain? Yeah, so especially in the geopolitical climate that I just outlined, reliable Western sources of uranium becomes incredibly important. Russia does not do much direct U308 mining, maybe 5% of global supply or so. But Kazakhstan, fully independent neighboring country, former satellite, is 40%. So you know, there is definitely concern in fuel markets over time. That becomes a regional block. And at the same time, because Kazakh material in particular has been very inexpensive and ramped significantly through the nuclear bear market that we had, that those low-cost pounds in the market disincentivized development in the West. So to answer your question, we've been hyper-focused on trying to find very high-quality strategic resources that are in the West that we hope can scale up to get a real blocking position in the market, which will, in our opinion, remain in structural deficit for many years, regardless of capital. But if you are a size deposit in the right jurisdiction, the right cost profile, we think that will maybe be seen by the market as a strategic asset, and currently they're not. So let's turn over to the conversion opportunities. Conversion is probably a little easier to explain because it's a more concentrated market. Conversion was in oversupply as a service in the post-Fukushima years. Utilities thought that they would be shot upwards of a third of our generation a decade forward, which is a lot. Fuel costs are a relatively small percentage of operating a plant. People who don't know nuclear economics that well maybe assume that like coal or gas plant feedstock is 80% of running. It's flipped on its head for a nuclear reactor. It's all upfront capex, a little bit of opex and fuel costs fully baked or maybe 15, 17%. Uranium is three to five percent. So it's very, very, very small. And you run very long forward contracts and very high inventories as part of your operations, which means that this is not a just in time market. And conversion would be a great example of a market that was expected to be in oversupply for a long time based on some very stale views of what global nuclear generation was going to look like. And very quickly through lifetime extensions in the West. China's build policy, advanced nuclear, the Russian war went into tight supply and prices have gone up bananas. Conversion is hard to play on a pure play basis. Companies like Campco would be a publicly traded company that has conversion services in their quiver of nuclear fuel offerings. So then you move on to enrichment and you mentioned half the market is a Russian company. So <laughs> the challenges continue. It's actually a little bit complicated here. Enrichment has been a pretty concentrated market. 45, 47% of it has been run by Russia's Rosatom 10X. And you haven't seen them direct sanction yet, mostly in our opinion, because to do so overnight really cripple the Western nuclear fuel markets. But that doesn't mean that on a go forward basis, we won't be incrementally significantly reducing our exposure to those sources of enrichment until we're at zero. So that market is tightening and tightening and tightening. Enrichment has been in overcapacity for a very long period. Overcapacity of enrichment services actually leads to excess uranium. Imagine you're a utility and you want your nuclear fuel. You order a glass of orange juice. Your glass of orange juice is essentially your enriched uranium fuel. That's what you want in your reactor. There's two ways that you can get your orange juice. You can get it from your oranges, in this analogy, your oranges are uranium, or you can get it from your juice squeezer. 
in this case, reduce squeezers for your enrichment service. If you have an excess of squeezing capacity, an excess of enrichment capacity, you maybe take one orange on it and you squeeze it and you squeeze it and you let it run on the squeezer until the last drop is out of the orange because if that orange isn't on the squeezer, if it's not in the centrifuge, it's got nothing else to do. But when you originally ordered your package, you had three oranges to make your glass of orange juice. So you've got two extra now. Those two have gotten sold back to the uranium market for a long period of time, which has actually been a secondary source of supply that comes out of mines. When the enrichment market tightens and you have a deficit of enrichment services, the opposite actually becomes true, which is that you buy more oranges for the same glass of orange juice, you pop them on the squeezer, you get the fat pitch of juice out, and you move on to the next. And that's why enrichment today is so interesting. Because again, Russia, which has been a very large percentage of the market, is being carved out. It's quickly and overnight turned the enrichment market somewhat upside down. And what the market hasn't fully digested yet, because this market moves in slow motion, is that on a go-forward basis, you probably aren't going to get supply from the enrichers. And it's very likely that you actually have demand from the enrichers, which is a process that's known as going from underfeeding to overfeeding. How have you thought about investing in the public markets versus private market opportunities? The private markets were always more expensive than the public markets. If you go back to 2018, energy, metals and mining were at their lows. That was acutely felt in the uranium market. So that led us to taking a private equity and public markets approach. Now, if we're talking about the opportunity set today, which is growing into advanced nuclear, new generation, new fuels, new ways to enrich. We don't choose public or private markets. We're in a nice position now where we go where the quality and the value coincide. Our platform gives us the flexibility in theory to do both. The public markets are mostly dominated by fuel cycle plays. And of fuel cycle plays, uranium miners are vast majority of the opportunity set. There are some enrichment plays as well, and you have like a diversified player like a Campco. Additionally, there are a few nuclear technology companies. You have industrials that service the nuclear industry as a full business model or, or part of their business model. Across that, how many names are there in your investable universe of the public markets? It's probably about 100, 120. It's pretty small. We like that because it's almost a success for us, especially being dedicated for almost five years looking at this set. And we do look at the private markets, not only because they're very influential to our modeling of fuel market to demand curve over the medium and then long term, but also so that we understand what's coming down the pipe. And we do think that though, especially if the market and the world continues to integrate nuclear more into the transition, there are companies that should be public today that are private. What are the implications of the long lead time in the fuel cycle for investing, particularly in the public markets? The public markets want information that's going to move securities you know, on demand. I think it's the timing of how supply and demand work in this market that honestly has frustrated some investors who are investing in the uranium fuel cycle. And also is probably the biggest knowledge barrier, even for smart institutional investors in understanding the way that this market's going to continue to unfold over the coming years. The capital cycle is front and center to this conundrum for investors because nuclear fuel starts its process two, three, four years before it finds its way into a reactor. 
the, the price signals needed to incentivize new capex often don't align with demand because of that timing element in the market. So we like to say that capex should happen four or five years before the eventual demand. And what ended up happening is that nuclear was really excluded from any growth assumption until the very last minute. And that has kept capital restrained from the fuel cycle. Prices need to be higher to incentivize that capital. And so we missed the window in our opinion. If the loan should have been developing new mines, that expresses itself in the market slowly and then all at once. Demand is inelastic. And as long as a pound needed is supplied, we don't expose the deficits. There's not opportunistic capital really front running this like you would see in other markets. But then it goes. And it's very hard to respond because the discovery to permitting can be 10 years. And even high quality development assets, the best ones that we see out there are probably four years out from producing. How does safety play in all this? There's always been this discussion that, well, yeah, nuclear is clean and can scale, unlike some of the other environmentally friendly energies. But we have Fukushima, we've had all these other problems in the past. The simple answer is to put the problems that we've had in the context of the power generator from nuclear, and you realize just how safe you know, and reliable it is. That's not to say that nuclear couldn't or shouldn't be held to a higher standard because when things go wrong, it's viewed as a, as a tail risk. Analogy that everybody uses is being scared of driving a car versus flying in an airplane despite the safety dynamics at play. And I think it's a pretty good one. But nonetheless, there are very good reasons for the accidents that have happened through history. Both existing plants and certainly advanced nuclear are dead set on reducing the highly low probability tail event even further. Advanced designs have walk-away passive safety features, in some cases have cores that can't melt down, fuel that cannot melt down, they have lower waste profiles, proliferation risk is reduced. The industry, in short, has understood for the last two or three decades that if they want to survive and evolve, whether it's mathematically justified or not, they need to do these things better. And so they are doing these things better. How does waste play into that as well? I don't think most people really understand waste. They think of the Simpsons and a highlighter green fuel rod and somebody walking out of a nuclear power plant with three heads, and they think that that's really what it is. And the truth of the matter is that nuclear waste, because of the energy density of what we're talking about, is extraordinarily minimal relative to what's been produced. In your lifetime, for all the electricity you use and power that you use, I think half a Coke can is about how much uranium waste you'd have left over, whereas you'd probably have your whole yard stacked up five stories of coal. So waste is the most misunderstood and malign part of the nuclear thesis. Nuclear waste goes into concrete caskets, which are stored either on site at the utility or in repositories. There has never been an accident with nuclear waste in the history. In the United States, all the nuclear waste we've ever accumulated you know, over the last 60 years can fit on a football field 10 feet high. It's de minimis. When we ask people, debate energy people, they usually think the waste profile is hundreds, if not thousands of times that size and magnitude. What has to happen for that gap in understanding of both the waste profile and the safety profile to the point where nuclear has significantly more adoption than it does today? Well, you know what's interesting is that you're starting to see it in the polling. And I hate to be this blunt about it, but the 
generation who experienced Three Mile Island and China Syndrome, the movie, I guess to a certain extent, then also Chernobyl, they're getting older. Younger generations don't have experience of that kind. And frankly, the marketing and negative PR has really toned down. The Green parties, so-called environmental activist groups, aren't taking aim at nuclear in the way that they did. Certainly in my parents' generation, maybe even in my teens. And I think all that is showing up again in Poland, which is that young people are very supportive of nuclear. You're seeing it in every country where the failed energy policy is actually starting to bite, either because electricity prices are through the roof or because there's energy rationing. If those countries have shut nuclear and had that as a consequence, popular sentiment has shifted very radically. But ultimately, I think in Western markets, what we need is a better comp. Because three years ago, when we would talk about our funds or frankly, just our views on energy, most investors would say to us, but is it nuclear dangerous? The truth of the matter is in a few short years, Nuclear is dangerous does not come up much with anybody that we speak to. But there is heavy, heavy skepticism that nuclear can be economic or that nuclear can be scaled. And especially in general energy research, which is heavily skewed against nuclear, because it is so efficient, capacity factors are through the roof. Once it's there, it's a monster. They use the Vogel plant by Southern Company as the cop in the West, and it's been a disaster. It's big, it's over budget, it's over timeline. But it's our United States comp, and we need to get rid of that so that the question isn't, why is this plant not Vogel? It should be, well, how did New Scales SMR? How was that built? Or how was X Energy built? Or if Westinghouse returns as a leaner, meaner, reorganized company, how are their AP1000 exports going? Because they've got a lot of orders in Europe mostly, but it's building back up. And if we see those in the market, I think the average investor or energy analyst is not going to be able to point to what is probably the biggest new build failure in the West as our most recent data point. When you have that large upfront CapEx need and this perception that you've got issues, how does the industry solve that chicken and egg problem to bring capital into the space when there's this left tail concern? Yeah. So one thing that you already asked is, is critical. Putting nuclear in a taxonomy or other framework that gives it the same financing, I won't call it subsidies, but the same financing platform as other generation sources is actually a remarkably important piece of getting them to be on an economic scale of their competitors. We're buried deep in the layers of how we've gotten wind and solar scaled and certainly carbon capture or some of the other technologies that we have lingering around are a huge amount of subsidized lending. And it is very encouraging to see how nuclear is improving its position vis-a-vis that. The second way, and this goes back more to history, is to actually have the political backing of some of the bigger nuclear exporting countries. So in the US, most may not be aware, but nuclear is a bipartisan support issue for the first time in probably 40 years or so. And what that means practically for like building of reactors is that the US for the first time via Westinghouse and some other companies are going head to head with the Koreans who have built on time budget. In certain cases, the Chinese who are building scalable, inexpensive reactors built on the Westinghouse design. 
And there's a backstop of political support, which is getting all the reactors built in growth markets. When you've assimilated all this information, both where the opportunities are, where some of the challenges are, how did you decide to put that into an investment strategy? It are usually focused on asymmetry, position by position, portfolio level. It's really deep fundamental securities analysis, all value-driven, where we think the tails are mispriced and skewed. We've done a lot of funny things like over Segra's lifetime. I mean, we have owned cement companies in Pakistan when they were trading at two or three times EBITDA. We were early in buying Middle East financials when they were trading at huge discounts. Irish real estate, when the REIT market started there and they were coming out of NAMA, Arista. We're thinking about the business between running a more diversified strategy or focusing on energy. We mapped out all of our top picks. We pulled them out and we said, how do we rank the macro or the industry? And how do we rank the securities? And what do we think like our five-year returns look like on anything that we know really well today? It was so wildly skewed in nuclear versus other investments that we couldn't ignore it, at least not when we had the business option to do so. And so we continue to run those exercises. And the good news is, in a weird way, mostly because the demand outlook is so much better today than a year ago versus two years ago, we are as bullish as we've been since we launched when we told people we'd be 100% long. And that's the first time in many years. And that's because pricing in this market is wrong, we think. And we think we know why, which is, I guess, is the real key. So when you have that supply-demand mismatch and you're very excited about the structural opportunity, how do management of the companies play into your assessment? It's a big piece of the process. We are not activists, but we are extremely hands-on. Mining is a historically bad business. We're very conscious of that. We agree, frankly, with the labeling of mining and energy industries. So we need to keep our management teams honest, and we do our best to marshal them with our capital. And we've been very selective about the companies who we're backing. One positive for uranium mining specifically is that because of, frankly, these wild capital cycles, where famously there were probably some 450 uranium miners or so in the last cycle. We launched our fund. It was down to 30 or so. The rest had gone away. Got a new crop, either assets that have been purchased or consolidated, or some are new discoveries. The management teams who are taking these companies over realize that to get capital, to get contracts from utilities, they need to do their best to reach an ESG standard. And even small non-producing companies are putting together at our urging and, and the urging of other investors, real internal work on how they do best practices, ESG, et cetera, so that they dovetail with utilities who are ordering themselves to the same standard. Those standards need to be met. And they probably all won't succeed, but it's putting them in a better position than I think some of the legacy mining or energy businesses to achieve it. So if you look out five or six years from now, and the thesis you've articulated doesn't play out. Give me a pre-mortem on why that hasn't worked. Just to rattle off a few things, obviously, we always say there's the potential for a left tail event, an accident, which I think would be a very difficult thing for the industry to swallow. A lot of good reasons, obviously, why we don't think that's going to happen. We can't price or hedge that. It's something that you have to be comfortable with. 
there is the possibility of a rapid shift in policy, and in particular, how we view fossil fuel investments. We are climate change believers, solution skeptics, and we think that that is the right environment, the right recipe for continued suppression of investment in fossil fuels and continued creativity on other things. But it is very possible that our view on climate and the climate trajectory changes, and that could delay investment, probably not just in nuclear, but in a lot of the things that are forward-looking today. What I would say is that the biggest risk probably is just that there is a discount or multiple contraction in our sector that we can't predict. Essentially, that it gets cheaper for some reason that, that we can't figure out today. Because I won't get into the nitty gritty of how we model this industry, but we take a bat to it. What's so great about modeling the nuclear industry, oil and gas is tricky. There's so many different end uses. Refining process is complicated. It's produced all over the world. It's consumed all over the world. Nuclear fuel is much simpler. The operating reactors and those that are under construction that have licenses are very, very well defined. You know about them five, if not 10 years in advance. You know about decommissionings because of the impact on the grid multiple years in advance. So your demand forecasting is extremely accurate. Frankly, On the supply side, 50 or 60 producing assets, many of which are held between two or three companies, relatively easy to break that down. When we model out demand, I think, especially in our base case, we feel pretty good about it. There shouldn't be a lot of variability barring some exogenous risk to the nuclear markets broadly, but doesn't mean the sector couldn't get cheaper. You know, It doesn't mean that they couldn't trade cheaper for whatever reason. What we do really to monitor that is more the rate of change in demand and supply, which we think is a sentiment driver and potentially causes the big multiple rate. Because it's really that shock and that bite in the market that we think actually causes big premiums on key assets when we realize that this is a sustained supply problem, which is really the core of our thesis when it comes to the commodity. All right, Adam, I'm not going to let you go without asking you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I recently relocated to Florida, which is where I grew up, and I grew up surfing. And I think the job can be pretty stressful. It's volatile. Sometimes it cannot make sense. And I think the exercise in general, but the water in particular, is a pretty good centering activity and centering force. The surfing was my passion growing up, and it's being revisited. That's great. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? My biggest investment pet peeve is this person said so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that articulated it, but with all humility, I think real differentiated research is pretty rare. I think there's still a lot of groupthink in markets, and I understand why. There was a very real possibility that I ended up in a business that looks a lot like mine. I could be at a hedge fund where I think consensus or being at least even on the fringes of the herd is critical to staying in business. But we have tried not being tied in by those restraints because we don't care about anybody's view really except ours unless they're a true expert, unless it's the industry telling us something, unless it's fundamental to our thesis that's changing things, the chatter can really get in the way of a good investment run. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My dad is one of them. He's a physician, has nothing to do with markets, but I'll tell you when I launched Segra, I did a lot of emerging markets and commodities at Aquarius Vertical where I was in. And one of the things that I pitched my early LPs on was Egypt. You're going to shake your head. And in 2013, I managed 
by some stroke of the universe to put a sizable position on Egyptian bonds about three days before the Arab Spring. <laughs> First big position in the fund. And I tell you, I'm pretty sure that I was close to having a heart attack. I was really shaken. My parents happened to be visiting. And I just remember my dad telling me, you always got to keep your legs moving. He's like, you're a running back. He's like, just keep your legs moving. Keep your legs moving. Maybe it's a little silly, but I swear I think about that on difficult days or when the market side, Barbara, just if you keep your legs moving, you can stay up. So you're definitely my dad. And then I talked a lot about Coriante and there were wonderful guys there, but I've got a really fantastic group at Sagra. We're tight knit. Arthur and I were randomly assigned freshman year roommates and we've pretty much been best buddies since, best men at each other's weddings. But we proved to be a good yin and yang. We've got a real symbiotic relationship that pushes us in a productive way where we have open and free dialogue. We know each other's weaknesses. While that's not like a mentor or somebody that's driven us, it's a daily reminder of why we should try and be our best. And I think to a large extent, we do it for each other because we know each other's families and we know what our ambitions are and we don't want to let each other down. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? If our positions don't make you want to puke, we're not doing our job. So <laughs> I think I'm a moth to flame for the things that people can't see any case in, but that we have hope. And what are your biggest blind spots? I can get a little excited about things. The team does a good job of temporary back, but I think I'm usually more excited at the beginning. And then my pessimism and skepticism comes in later. But it means that I probably do more upfront work than I should. I could be more discriminating. The good news is that I think Arthur is the opposite. Since we co-run investments, I think it takes him longer to get excited. But then on the tail end, he's coming up to being excited right as I'm shutting it down. And then we have to battle it out for whether it makes up the portfolio or not. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Honesty is the best policy. In our investment process, the thesis creep is a real thing. We're exclusively dedicated on a small quarter of the energy markets that happen to be volatile. We all have a very large percentage of our net worths in the fund. How do you prevent yourself from wanting this to work versus it working on its own merit? That's a very, very fair question. And so keeping ourselves honest, being honest to ourselves, being honest to each other is definitely something that we emphasize a lot. I can't say that we always do it perfectly, but it's at the center of the way that I grew up in a very open and honest household. And I think not just me, but everybody that works at Sagro has tried to bring the same ethos. All right, Adam, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Even though I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do, I did think that I wanted to run my own business at some point. But in anticipation of that, I was so conservative with everything that I did in my life. Ask Arthur or some of my friends. Sometimes I wouldn't go out to dinner because I thought that I should be reading an annual and saving money and doing whatever. I heard it a lot. People told me time is precious, live a little bit. And I think I probably didn't live enough in retrospect. I could have relaxed a little bit. Now, I think there are probably some benefits to that, but life is long. Everything hasn't happened by the time you're 25. If I could have figured that out a little earlier. <laughs> Probably would have had some positive effects, but I have no regrets. Adam, thanks so much for sharing this really interesting deep dive. That's been great. Thanks for having me, Dad. It's, it's been a long time. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 